Corinthians 11 is about the Lord's Supper again. But also the next Lord's Day, Lord's Day 30. So I like to combine that in this morning hour. We have considered the Lord's Supper in the previous Lord's Days 28 to 29. So this morning, Lord's Day 30, in combination with 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34. So let us first read the Lord's Day 30 on page 62. Question 80. What difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Popish Mass? The Lord's Supper testifies to us that we have full pardon of our sin by the only sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself has once accomplished on the cross, and that we by the Holy Ghost are engrafted into Christ, who according to his human nature is now not on earth, but in heaven, at the right hand of God his Father, and will there be worshipped by us. But the Mass teaches that the living and dead have not the pardon of sins through the sufferings of Christ unless Christ is also daily offered for them by the priests. And further, that Christ is bodily under the form of bread and wine and therefore is to be worshipped in them so that the Mass at bottom is nothing else than a denial of the one sacrifice and sufferings of Christ Jesus and an accursed idolatry. 81. For whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? For those who are truly sorrowful for their sins and yet trust that these are forgiven them for the sake of Christ and that their remaining infirmities are covered by his passion and death and also earnestly desire to have their faith more and more strengthened and their lives more holy. But hypocrites and such as turn not to God with sincere hearts eat and drink judgment to themselves. 82. Are they also to be admitted to this supper who by confession and life declare themselves unbelieving and ungodly? No, for by this the covenant of God will be profaned and his wrath kindled against the whole congregation. Therefore it is the duty of the Christian church, according to the appointment of Christ and his apostles, to exclude such persons by the keys of the kingdom of heaven till, show, till they show amendment of life. So far. Partaking of the Lord's Supper, mind fully. Partaking of the Lord's Supper mindfully. Three thoughts mindful of the table. The first thought. There's a table set, not an altar. A table. Mindful of the table. Secondly, mindful of who are attending. Not all members are allowed to attend. Who is? Who is not? And in the third place, mindful of what the Apostle Paul taught us in 1 Corinthians 11. So the first two thoughts are about the Heidelberg Catechism, and the third thought is about 1 Corinthians 11. Partake of the Lord's Supper mindfully, mindful of the table, mindful of who are attending, and mindful of what Paul taught us. So let me begin with the children, young people. 
What is an altar for? Like Cain and Abel built an altar of stones. They stacked the stones and made an altar. What is, it, what is an altar for? Why did Abel make an altar? Why did he make an altar in Bethel and in other places? An altar, you know what an altar is for, right? An altar is therefore that someone later on the priest and previously the individuals came with, for example, an animal, a goat or a bullock, and they slaughtered it, they killed it, they caught the blood, and they put the animal on the, on the altar, and there was wood, and they kindled it, and there was smoke and fire, and it was given to the Lord. Right? So that was common in Israel, and it was common also among the Gentiles. Also in the Baal service, right? They sacrificed to Baal as well, also for an altar. Think of Elijah on the Mount Carmel, where the Baal priest asked the, 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 the Baal, their God, to also come down with fire and lit the altar, lit the, the sacrifice. So altars are for sacrificing. Sacrificing of animals and sometimes sacrificing of wheat. So how would you feel if you would remove this pulpit? Put it to the side. And build an altar in church. Children. What about an altar in church? And maybe a chimney. And the, the, the smoke would go up. Why, would, why don't we sacrifice anymore? Why don't we have an altar in church? There's so many altars in the Bible. Why not in church? Well, some of you know the answer. You say, well, the Lord Jesus, he was sacrificed himself on the cross. And when that happened, then the veil of the temple, the thick curtain was opened and was torn from the top to the bottom. The veil rent the Lord indicating, it's over. I don't need any sacrifices anymore. I don't need to see blood any longer. Because the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus, has been slain. And he has sacrificed, he has paid the price. So we don't need an altar at all anymore. We don't need it anymore. But do you know that there are still churches and they have removed the, the pulpit to the side? Still? In Chilvac? That they have built an altar in church? There's an altar in front of the church? Do you know that? And they're sacrificing. They're sacrificing the Lord Jesus again. How can that be? Let, let me ask them, what are you doing? Because the Lord Jesus was sacrificed on the cross. And they say, yes, but he has to be sacrificed again every day. Because we have beloved ones in the purgatory. In the purgatory that is between hell and heaven. What is that? It doesn't exist. It is just their fancy. They say we'd like to have our dad and mom and children and, and our beloved ones to go as soon as possible to heaven. And that's why the Lord Jesus needs to be sacrificed again on the altar in church. And we say, you mean kind of. You mean an example of. You don't mean that really, right? Because the Lord Jesus is not here. He's in heaven, right? No, no, they say... The blood, the, the wine, becomes the blood of Jesus, and the bread becomes the body of Jesus, and we really sacrifice, we really sacrifice in church. So I ask them, but does the Bible not say in Hebrews that there's only one sacrifice? And that the Lord Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient and that we may not add any other sacrifices. 
And they say, no, our Pope and our tradition, our church tells us that we must sacrifice him again. The Mass, second part of 80, the Mass teaches that the living and the dead in the purgatory have not the pardon of sins through the sufferings of Christ, unless Christ is also daily offered for them by the priest. So that's still happening in St. Mary's Church. They have an altar in church. Maybe you've never been there. Maybe you have. But you know, in the Roman Catholic Church, it's not the preaching that is so central, but it's the, it is the sacrifice, it's, it's the Mass. That's the central thing there. So, that makes us shake our heads and say, how can you do that? How can you have the courage to do that? This is blasphemous. How can you say that, that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross is not enough? How do you dare to say that? They say, well, that's what our church teaches. But it's not, it's not in the Bible. They say, well, it does not need to be in the Bible. If our Pope and the Popes from, from, from previous times and and in cardinals say so. So the pulpit has been replaced by the altar. That is a crucial thing. We read in Hebrews 10 verse 12, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. So one sacrifice for sins forever. And that is the comfort for God's people. That we don't need an additional sacrifice anymore. That we don't need anything else but that sacrifice. That the death of the Lord Jesus on the cross is all sufficient. Sufficient for the expiation of the sins of the whole world. And it is terrible. It is accursed idolatry to say it in a different way. You know, question 80 is actually an add-on and the answer also, of course. In the first edition of the Heidelberg Catechism, this part was missing. But then Zacharias, Eusenius, and Caspar Olivianus, in connection with other theologians, said, you know, we have to make it more clear. We have to just be open and blunt about it. Because that's what the Bible does as well. So they have added question 80. And now there are people saying we should take it out again. Because that's so harsh. You don't say that. Accursed idolatry, being so hard on the Roman Catholics, that is just, be, that is just have a softer tone and just be more, more kind and more Christian and more loving. But you know, we have absolutely nothing against the people. We feel sorry for them. Poor. Roman Catholics, that you have such a doctrine that takes this, the, the comfort out of it. And we don't despise, we don't despise any religion, I, I mean any, any, any people of any religion. We don't despise, or so, or so we don't despise the Roman Catholics. We don't look down on them at all, I hope. We are not any better, are we? We aren't. But we are not talking about any, being any better. We are talking about the doctrine. And that doctrine is a cursed idolatry. So, it's not only this, it's also that 
the bread and the wine become the blood and body of Christ, right? So let me also explain it a little, more, a little simpler than before. So let us attend, in our mind, attend a Roman Catholic worship service where the Mass is administered. And see the altar, pulpit on the side. See the altar, and see the priest with the cup of the blessing in his hand and the piece of bread. And he says, this is my body. And when that happens, the bread and the wine become blood and body of Christ, and there is a sacrifice taking place at that every moment. And then he takes a sip of the wine, and he takes a piece of the bread, of the wafer, they call it, it's a dry wafer. And then he also shares that with some congregants. They also may take a little bit of the bread, usually not of the wine. And then, then the service is over, and I see close to the altar, I see a few leftovers of the bread, of the wine. Now what? What do you do with them? Does the custodian take them at home and just eat them with the kids? Or are they fed to the animals? Or do you put them on the, in the garbage? So what, what, what do we do? What, what do they do with that? With, with those sacrificed pieces of bread who have become the body of Jesus. What do they do? I see the priest holding the piece and he bows for it. Really, he bows for it. And he puts all those leftover pieces in the little box close to the altar and close the door. And there is that awareness. Jesus is in church. Jesus is there in the bread. And I see a few ladies coming in during the week and they look at the images and they look at the church and they look also at the little box and they know Jesus is there. They go, they go on their knees in, in church, go on their knees. I've seen it myself. And sometimes they have a parade in those towns in Roman Catholic areas. In Bolivia and in the southern part of Holland, they have parades, right? Like they have parades here. And in those processions, they also carry along those pieces of bread. And the, the priest is holding them, holding them and they, they walk through town, they drive through town and the streets are lined with people, Roman Catholic people, and they kneel. They kneel for them. It's still happening in this world with the 1 billion, 200 million people being Roman Catholic. So many are deceived and just Worship the bread. If that is not idolatry, what is idolatry? And the word of God is accursing it. Galatians 1 verse 8, But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. And we said before, so say now again, if any man preach any other gospel unto you than that ye have received, let him be accursed. So we say that doctrine is horrible. The doctrine is a cursed doctrine because it is not according to the Bible. So that is our first thought. And, um, doctrine of free and sovereign grace and of the one sacrifice of Christ is dear to us, and we cannot let it go. That's the heart of the gospel. Only one sacrifice for every sin. And something God still fall back into time and again. I don't have to sacrifice myself. We don't need any addition from, from elsewhere. 
it's, it's all from the Lord's hand, brings to the second thought. Mindful of who are attending. So for whom is the Lord's Supper instituted? For those who are truly sorrowful for their sins and yet trust that these are forgiven them by the sake, for the sake of Christ, uh, that their remaining infirmities are covered by his passion and death, and who also earnestly desire to have their faith more and more strengthened and their lives more holy. So the Lord's Supper is a holy sacrament, and only worthy people may attend. Worthy? Who is worthy? Nobody is worthy in the sense that he has value and that he can pay for it and that he can qualify for the Lord's Supper. But it means that we must be sincere and that we must know the work of the Lord in our heart. Because if we attend without a divine right, we eat and drink damnation to ourselves, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 11. So what is needed? A true faith. I mean, a true faith. I'm sure when I would walk into town and I would just interview people on the street, do you believe? I think most people say, I believe in something. And quite a few people say, I believe in God. And quite a few people say, I believe also in Jesus. But what do they mean? So many say that they believe in Jesus. But do they? What is that? True believing in the Lord Jesus. We must know what we are talking about. right? So let us make it simple. In the first place, we need to know self. You need to become aware of who you are, what you have done, and that you are worthy of death. We must discover our own heart. So let me show that to you from the Bible. For example, from Ezekiel 6, verse 9. And they shall loathe, loathe themselves for the evils which they have committed in all their abominations. They must loathe themselves. Loathsome in their own sight. You know, loathsome, loathsome is repugnant, despicable. So, do you know about yourself that you are a despicable person? Repugnant? And are you aware of your loathsome disease? It's just terrible. It's worse than leprosy. It is a Total corruption of the heart. It is being dead in sins and trespasses. And just to know that, to understand that, that you're not only having problems in this life. You know, most people need God for the problems in their life. But they don't need him because of their sins. They don't need him because of their loathsome disease. So we need to discover that. So, let me just ask, it's straightforward. Do you know of loathing yourself? Or think of the beautiful text in Isaiah 66, verse 2, but to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit contrite spirit and trembleth at my word. I looked up the word contrite. 
What does it mean? What was this country? I, I had no idea, actually. And the bird book says, lame, struck, smitten. You lost. You can't win. You're at your wit's end. You're just done. When the Holy Spirit begins to work in a person, he brings an awareness of sin, of your loathsome disease, making you feel horrible and despicable. And you come to the conclusion that you can't do anything. You're smitten. You lose the war. And you capitulate. You, you give yourself over. You say, Lord, it's, it's, it's terrible. I can't help myself. Please be merciful and, and be a sinner. And that is sincere. This is real. That does not make you worthy, but it's necessary. Now, many wonder if they have enough knowledge of the misery and do not dare to believe and do not dare to attend the Lord's Supper until they have a certain big amount of that knowledge of misery. And I'm afraid that some are stuck there. Some are stuck and say, I, I, I don't have enough of that. I, 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 I can't believe it. I have, I, have, I have days that I just forget about the Lord. And I have days that I don't feel broken. And I have days that I don't cry at all. I, I've been weeks and I feel so indifferent. I'm, I'm such a horrible person. It's, it's so bad. I can't believe that the Lord would deal with someone like me. I, I, just, I just miss that profound knowledge of misery. I, I feel so superficial. I feel so hard. I feel so unconverted. So they would like to pay the Lord with brokenness. They like to remind the Lord of their sleepless nights. They would like to show the Lord their tears. So, Lord, I've cried. I've cried such a lot, so, so much. I've had such a sleepless night. And then, then they would like to feel better about that. So they, they have something to say, Lord, this is it's, it's true now. And I tell you something. God's children will never come there. They will never come to the place that they feel satisfied. They say, yeah, now I have enough knowledge of my misery. I just feel it. It's okay now. Now I can come to Jesus. It will never happen. Because if it is the Lord's work, the Lord keeps you so poor and so needy that you can't qualify in any way, shape, or form and that you must come with empty hands. So be careful with the trick of Satan. Satan tries to keep you back, and Satan tries to tell you you don't qualify, you don't have enough knowledge of misery. But, let me add this, without that knowledge, if you don't have that knowledge of misery, you would not hunger for Christ. You would not come to Christ. You would not be mindful of him. You would not seek him. So if you are really seeking the Lord Jesus, or if you have come to him, then you know that the knowledge of your misery has been sufficient. Not beforehand, but afterwards. You don't have to know beforehand if you're chosen. Before you flee to Jesus. You have to wait till you notice that you're chosen? No. You don't have to know that you have enough knowledge of your misery before you come to Christ. Because the coming to Christ itself proves it. But we need it. It is necessary to know our misery though. 
for those who are truly sorrowful for their sins. But you know, there are lots of people, nice people, with deep awareness of their sins among the Jewish people, for example. The Jewish prayer books, if you read them, you will be surprised. So humble. So much aware of their shortcomings, their sins. Even in Muslim books, even in books of monks from the Buddhists, so humble, so aware of the frailty and the sinfulness and the shortcomings, and the, right? So never build on that, right, either. Never secretly think, you know, I have something of that knowledge of misery, so I must be saved. Because lots of people have that. But you know, the problem is when people have that knowledge of misery, they just stay in that pit. They may dream about coming out of it, but they remain in that pit. Like Joseph. Children, Joseph in that pit, his, his brothers threw in there. He looked up, he saw a little bit of light there. He couldn't get out. And so God's people may feel also in that pit, but then they see the rope coming down. And by faith they're holding onto the rope. And someone pulls them out. And that is also necessary. It is necessary to be taken out of that pit and to hold on to the rope and to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it's not the knowledge of misery that is saving us. The Lord says, he that believe within me. Right? It's, it's such a simple doctrine. It is not take away the simplicity of it. It is beautiful. It is humbling. It is so true by, by faith. By that true trusting in him. Let me show that on page 136 of the form for the Lord's Supper. Beautifully worded. Secondly, that everyone examine his own heart whether he does believe this faithful promise of God that all his sins are forgiven him only for the sake of the passion and death of Jesus Christ, and that the perfect righteousness of Christ is imputed and freely given him as his own, yea, so perfectly as if he had satisfied in his own person for all his sins and fulfilled all righteousness. See? And then in the, on the next page, in 137, But this is not designed, dearly beloved brethren and sisters in the Lord. Our forefathers felt kind of God's people in family, brothers and sisters. To deject the contrite hearts of the faithful, as if none might come to the supper of the Lord with those that were without sin, for we do not come to this supper to testify thereby that we are perfect and righteous in ourselves. But on the contrary, considering that we seek our life out of ourselves in Jesus Christ, we acknowledge that we lie in the midst of death. Lying in the midst of death and seeking salvation only in him that trusting in him, that hoping in him, that staying at his feet, that touching the hem of the garment, that relying on him, that treasuring him, that receiving him. The faith is so crucial, right? So only then we can be saved because the Lord Jesus is the one who paid the price with his active and passive obedience. But there's more. 
it's also necessary to live a holy life and also earnestly desire to have a faith more strengthened and their lives more holy. Do you like to live holier? Do you like to commit less sin? Do you prefer to be sanctified? There are three things, right? To know your misery, to know something of the Lord Jesus Christ and to truly believe in him and also to live accordingly. Like that parable at the end of the Sermon on the Mount about people building on the rock and people building on the sand. Do you remember what it is about? What is that, building on the sand? That is, they that hear the word and don't do it. And who is building on the rock? They that heed the word and do it, practice it. That is the real faith. And if we miss that holiness, then, then the floods come and the winds blow. Then the house will fall from that hill. And its fall will be great if there is no practice, if there is no holiness, if there is no desire to live a holy life. Because otherwise we are hypocrites, right? But hypocrites and such as turn not to God with sincere hearts drink, eat and drink judgment to themselves. Hypocrites. Sometimes God's people feel hypocrites. What is a hypocrite? Well, they that are not sincere, they that pretend they had fake things. Are you faking it? Are you not sincere? You know, God's children are honest. Honest and sincere. And they honestly confess their sins before the Lord. And they don't want to deceive anyone. And they don't like to deceive self either. And they cannot deceive the Lord. So the, there's uprightness in there. And I think God still can say that. That they don't fake it, that it's real. So in that sense, they are not hypocrites. So, ending this second thought, I would like to quote from Psalm 26. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my reins and my heart, for thy loving kindness is before mine eyes, and I have walked in thy truth. Lord, I have loved the habitation of thy house and the place where thine honor dwelleth. Brings to the third thought. First, the second part of 1 Corinthians 11 is also about the Lord's Supper. And there's quite a bit of overlap. But let me first picture the situation. It's busy at the house of one of the members of the congregation of Corinth. It's busy in the house, busy in the backyard. There are tables set and chairs or recliners. And they're waiting for the guests to appear. And I see some guests coming, they take food along themselves. It's not cooked at the location, they take it along. It's kind of a potluck dinner. They call it an agapa meal, a love meal that was quite common in those days. And I see some people arriving with pans and pots and baskets with food. And they don't put it on a table in the middle, in, 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 in the midst of them, so that they all can eat. But they kind of keep it to themselves, in in their family. So I see a family of rich people, with beautiful clothes on. There's nobility, maybe, owners of big farms, and they have lots of food. And I see them begin eating and drinking, and some of them get a little. Hi. 
And I see not the corner of that, of that home or, or the yard. I see some slaves. And they also take some food along. But, you know, it's, it's not that great. They're just poor people. And they're sitting there. And, 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 and they, they're eating separate. There's kind of divisions there. Separate cliques. Closed groups. And then at the end of the meal, there is something in common. Then one of the ministers is standing up and says that we now have the Lord's Supper. So the bready break is the communion of the body of Christ, and the bread was given. This is my body broken for you. So the Ekepar meals were combined with the Lord's Supper. They were kind of merging. But it created tension there, right? So much that the Apostle Paul says, you make it only worse with coming to church. Verse 17, 18, Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that you come together not for the better, but for the worse. It's getting worse. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear there are divisions among you, and I partly believe it, for there must also be heresies. When you come together into one place, this is not to eat Lord's Supper. For in eating, everyone take it before other. This is his own supper. Verse 21, his own supper. And one is hungry and doesn't have enough, and the other one has plenty and is drunken. So the Apostle Paul is telling them that they should celebrate the Lord's death in a different way, in more, in more unity, and not merge the love meals with the Lord's Supper, but to separate it. And then he has a strong focus on to remember to remember the past because the Lord's Supper reminds the people of the passion and death of Christ in the past, right? But let's be careful with that. When you remember things on Remembrance Day, it's all past. It happened in the secular lore. When you remember, for example, Abraham Lincoln, and have a book and remember him and read about him, he, he does not hear you. He is not alive any longer. But at the Lord's Supper table, it is to have communion with the Savior and to remember his death in a lively way, in a, work, in a way worked by the Holy Spirit. That is, that's different. Lively remembering him. Eating of the lamb. Feasting on the true meat. To have it alive and to have it awareness of the passion, of the suffering and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and to be covered with his righteousness. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he break it and said, Take ye, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. In remembrance. So that is to have remember, remembering it. Taking the bread. And to remember what the Lord Jesus has done, but also who, who, who he is now in heaven. But the apostle also reminds us of something that is to come. Verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you, show, you, you do show the Lord's death till he comes. 
so the Lord's Supper has to be administered the rest of the life on earth until the last day. And that last day is the consummation of it. The last day, then the Lord Jesus comes face to face with his people. So now it is through the earth, and through the Lord's Supper, and through baptism. But then at the last day, to see him personally. So the Lord's Supper also talks about the future until he comes. Do you ever contemplate that? The Lord's Supper tells us about the marriage wedding, the wedding meal, that the Lord Jesus will be there with his people and that there will be eternal joy and happiness. So it is not only being mindful of What's happening in the heart is also being mindful of the future, being a pilgrim on your way home. And finally, it's also being mindful of others in verse 33. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. Also a little aspect in 1 Corinthians 11 that we don't see in the Heidelberg Catechism. Tarry one another. What does it mean? Well, wait for one another. Hope for one another. Expect one another. Pray for one another. So maybe you know someone in church and you truly believe that is a child of the Lord. You cannot judge that, but you believe that. And that person is not attending the Lord's Supper yet. And you feel that burden for that person. And you pray, Lord, if it is true, if it is saving faith, oh, may it please thee, Lord, to incline the heart and to give that person freedom to attend. The person is struck with fear of deceiving self and the fear of men. And, and, and you pray for that person. Lord, may she now attend. May he now have the freedom. And they are sitting in church. He just, you're looking. Is he? Is he this time going? Is he this, is he this time having the freedom? I just hope it's so much. And then she's not attending yet. And you're kind of sad and disappointed by that. Or one day, the Lord gives that freedom. And your answer, your, your, your prayers are answered, and you just rejoice. You rejoice so much, you say, I, I'm not, not surprised. I was waiting for that. Terry, wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. So have that openness in mind. And, of course, there are also people you don't know. You don't know what's going on in their heart. And they may attend, and you're surprised. You say, what? I, I, I can't see that. You know, but the Lord knows the heart. And when people have attended for the first time, as it consistently, we visit them, and we express our support and help, and we ask, them to also explain what has happened. But, you know, we are not called to examine them, right? They have to do it themselves. And only when things are absolutely unbiblical, we have to just tell them it's your responsibility. But you need to know this, and this, and this, and this. And it sometimes happens that you say, you know, I... If this is the only thing you have to tell, I would not have dared to do that. If there is not more, I would not have the courage to go there, in your case. So, without judging, you can say, but you know, you know, you just see if you know this, see if you know that, and examine your own heart, because you, it's, it's not worth it to deceive yourself, right? 
But at the same time, you may have that hope that it is God's saving work and that you are happy with it and that you are praying, have been praying. But if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that you come not together unto condemnation. And the rest will I set in order when I come. Because there is also a condemnation. Look at that. Look at verse 29 and 30. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. That's the hard text. But I think it means that the Lord came also with judgments over the congregation of Corinth. And that many became sick. And that many became, and many died. As a consequence of the sloppiness of the worship services, and that they were eating and drinking damnation themselves. So there is sometimes a link between the situation in the church and people getting sick, right? That's kind of difficult, foggy. But something like that, the Bible teaches here. So if we would judge ourselves, we we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Congregation, we have no altars in church. You have a pulpit, the word of the living God. We don't need a sacrifice. We have one sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that sacrifice is absolutely sufficient. And sins may come without qualifying the way they are. And we know they won't come without knowledge of the misery. But they cannot come with enough and they cannot be, cannot feel that they, that, that they qualify. They may not come unworthily, but they may come with no worthiness in themselves. Amen.